I love that song. Love it. It's a bit of a grammatical workout as we go through it. I think it was written in the 1600s, but such beauty and, and depth in, in the words. So I'm so glad we were able to, to sing it together. Now, hear these words from Mark chapter 11 as we get started. This is our text for the morning. Verse 27 says this. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Let's pray. Father, we do come before you with praise and grateful hearts recognizing how good and faithful you are. Thank you for calling us and inviting us to be here this morning to worship you. And God, as we turn our attention now to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear and understand what you have for us. We come with humble hearts, ready to receive. So Lord, would you teach us and shape us, Lord, for your glory and for our good in the good of your world. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, welcome to FBC. So glad that you are here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm glad that you're with us. This is the time in our service where we open up the Bible as we do every week to read it and study it and hear from God together. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 as we're continuing this series we've been doing uh, called King and Cross, where we're basically walking through the second half or so of the book of Mark, just a little bit at a time. And a huge thank you to Pastor Lee, who preached for me last week. He did a great job. And if you were here, it's a, it was a tough passage. There was a lot in there, a lot going on, and Lee did such a good job guiding us through it. So huge thanks to him. Uh, this morning, as you saw from the verses that I read, to start, we're going to be talking about the concept of authority. I know, authority, which can make some of us, again, a little bit uncomfortable. We don't always like authority as, as Westerners. We like to be our own authority, and we get a little wary or uneasy around those who claim to have authority. We don't always trust them. We're taught to question authority, right? We're, we're not so sure what to do with it, even with those who have authority over us rightfully, right? Like our parents or our bosses at work or people in leadership, even though they rightfully are an authority figure, we kind of push against it when they exercise that authority. And when they tell us what to do, we'll say, well, I'll do it, but I'm doing it because I want to do it, not because you mom or dad told me to do it, right? Anybody relate? Yeah? Okay. It's even worse, though, when someone is not an authority over us and they assume that they are. Mm -hmm. They kind of pretend to be. Maybe it's a, a peer or a sibling or maybe an annoying friend or a coworker, someone who doesn't really have any business bossing you around, but they kind of start to tell you what to do, and they kind of set themselves up as this de facto authority on this topic or on this subject. Isn't that frustrating? Now, you push against it. It riles you up a little bit, and, and it's understandable, especially when someone, again, doesn't have the authority, and they're trying to act like they do. So we see something related in Mark chapter 11 
that we're looking at with Jesus and with the religious leaders. You see the question that the religious leaders are asking Jesus. We started with this. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Right? Who gave you authority to do these things that you're doing? Jesus? We see there back in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. This has kind of been a pattern in Mark chapter 11. If you remember two weeks ago, Jesus and the disciples enter Jerusalem, the non-triumphal, triumphal entry, and then they, they leave the city. And then last week, as Pastor Lee was teaching, they were back in the temple and Jesus was doing some things there. And then they left and went back out. And now they're back in Jerusalem in the temple. So it's kind of this pattern we've seen. And the, the chief priests, it tells us, and the teachers of the law and the elders of Israel, so those who are in power, who have religious authority over the things that are going on in the temple and in uh, greater religious life for the Jews are asking him, what gives you, Jesus, the right to come in here and tell us how to run things? And we think about, okay, these things. What gives you the right to do these things, the text says? Well, what are, what are they talking about? These things. Again, last week we saw he's, he's in the temple and he's overturning tables, calling them, uh, take, telling them that they've turned God's house, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. He's saying uh, judgment against them. You guys have become corrupt. The things in the temple are not functioning how God wants them to. He's calling them out. If you remember, uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen these confrontational moments between Jesus and the, the elders or the scribes or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. He's, he's pushing them to rethink how they understand the Old Testament, how they understand uh, Sabbath and fasting and worship and, and all kinds of things. And so they're saying, who do you think you are? Jesus coming on the scene and telling us how to run things. Right? We're in charge. Imagine someone comes into your house. Right? You're sitting on the couch. You're eating your Cheetos. And you're watching Downton Abbey. Don't lie. You're watching your Downton Abbey. And someone walks in the street. And they start telling you, wait a second, wait a second. This, who, who arranged the furniture in the living room this way? The couch and the chair. Who, this is all wrong. This chair is supposed to be over here. And actually, who picked out the paint in here? And the, the painting on that wall, the color scheme? This is all wrong. Who did this? we got to change this. And they walk in your kitchen and they say, well, who filled the pantry and picked out this type of food and this type of food? And why are the pots and pans here? They're supposed to be over here. You guys got to get with the program. If someone did that to you, how would you respond? First, you say, well, uh, how'd you get in here? <laughs> First of all, <laughs> who are you? But also you'd say, well, wait a second. Who do you think you are? This is my house. I'm the one in charge of this domain who's making the decisions about how things are supposed to look. So who are you? It's kind of a similar reaction here for the religious leaders. Jesus, who do you think you are coming in? We're, we're the guys in charge. And so they're asking him this question. They're trying to kind of put him into a corner where they're saying, okay, Jesus, either you need to acknowledge that you don't have authority to tell us how to run things here, or you need to make a bold public statement that you think you're superior to the God-ordained leadership of the Jews, the chief priest, and so on. And that would be a very bold claim indeed. And so as Jesus 
often does, he answers their question with a question of his own. You see as the text unfolds. He replied in verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Okay, you answer me, then I'll answer you. Capiche, we got a deal? Here we go. Verse 30, John's baptism. Here's my question. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. John's baptism. Okay, he's pointing back to the ministry of John the Baptist, maybe a name you're familiar with. We saw him early on in the book of Mark. He came on the scene, and what was he doing? He was baptizing people and calling them to repentance. He saw himself fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about one who would come and prepare the way for the Lord, one who would call people to get their hearts right so that they could welcome the Messiah. So John's ministry was uh, in light of Old Testament prophecy ordained by God, pointing people to Jesus. And so you see this dilemma it puts the leaders in as it goes on. Verse 31, they discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? Okay, so if we say, well, Jesus, John's ministry was authorized from heaven, was authorized by God, then Jesus will say, well, then why didn't you believe him? He was pointing to me, his authority from God. He was preparing your hearts to meet me. So why are you not welcoming me? If John the Baptist was truly from God, then God is going to hold you accountable for not listening to his message. So they're like, that's not a good answer. We probably shouldn't go that route. But verse 32, but if we say of human origin, so if we say that, no, John's ministry was just of human origin, there was no divine authority behind it, it was just him doing what he wanted, it says they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they're like, wow, guys, kind of in a lose-lose situation here, right? So if, if John the Baptist wasn't from God and had no authority from God, then the people are going to lose it. Because they thought he was a prophet. Passionately, they believed this. And so we can't say that either. So we can't say from heaven. We can't say from man. We don't want to rock the boat because they fear the people and don't want to lose their power. And they're kind of tucked in this lose-lose situation. And so here's their enlightened answer that they got together and came up with. Verse 33. They answered Jesus. We don't know. <laughs> you got us. We're just going to have to punt on this one. And sorry, we, we don't know what to do with this, which would be embarrassing. It would be telling that the, the leaders of Israel could not weigh in in an intelligent way on the ministry of John the Baptist or even the ministry of Jesus. They're showing their ignorance. We don't know. And culturally, this would then free Jesus from the need to give any kind of response back. And you see what he says. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He says, you're not going to answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. I guess we're done here. It's an interesting little exchange, right? There's a lot of details we could dive into and kind of get, get lost in, but I want us to see what the heart of the matter is, what Jesus is really trying to do through this interaction. He, he's showing us big picture in a subtle way that his ministry, his presence, the things he's doing and saying are authorized by God. We know that he's God himself, and so he's saying just how John the Baptist was a prophet, a messenger of God with divine authority, so I am on the scene as a messenger of God, but truly, again, God himself. So he's saying, I'm not trying to boss you around like some kind of 
peer or coworker who has no real authority over you. No, he's saying, I'm, I'm the boss. I come as God himself to speak and judge and, and so on. There's going to be more on that authority question as we go. But I also want us to consider here what our posture is today to the ministry of Jesus. Because let's be honest, when we hear the gospel and we read the scriptures, it's going to be confrontational. It's going to challenge us, or we're not understanding the gospel in the right way, or we're not understanding the scriptures rightly. It's going to challenge us. No matter our background or our worldview or our ideology coming in, when we approach the scriptures, it's going to push us. Jesus is going to challenge us to reconsider some of the assumptions that we have about the world, about our own worldview. And so, as we look back to Jesus cleansing the temple earlier in chapter 11, he's on the scene, he's tossing over the table saying, you guys are doing this wrong, you've, you've corrupted what God meant for good. He's going to come on the scene in our lives and he's probably going to turn some tables over. There may be some places where he's like, this is not in line with my kingdom. This does not reflect the values of the kingdom of God. This, this attitude or this belief or this behavior or this relationship is out of line with who I am and what I've called you and my people to be about. Right? No matter who you are, where you come from. Jesus is too liberal for conservatives and he's too conservative for liberals. And so whichever side of the fence you come at it, you're going to be uncomfortable if you really understand the message of Jesus. So when those issues surface, again, in your life, in my life, we see them. Jesus is challenging us to, challenging us to rethink how we consider uh, money or sexuality or caring for the poor or protecting the vulnerable or loving our enemies, or forgiving our enemies, whatever it might be, in that moment we'll have a decision to make. Will we say to Jesus, well, who, who are you to come in here and tell me how to run my operation? Or will you recognize, okay, Jesus is the king. So I'm going to trust him and obey him in his ways. Right? Yes, the, the grace of God is free. We don't earn it. It's offered to all. And yet, if we respond, there will be uh, obedience that Jesus expects to his ways if we claim to truly walk with him. One way I've seen this in my life has been with my understanding of, of and this is a sensitive topic, but of, of, of racial issues. I think growing up, I just was, I wasn't a white supremacist or anything, but, um, but I was just, believe me, uh, but I was just kind of indifferent or unaware of of racial tensions and, and issues in our country or in the world. It was something that was easy for me to be dismissive about and kind of not listen to people that I knew that were uh, coming from a different background, had a different ethnicity from me. And that was something that I didn't have a lot of room for um, thinking about or, or entering into with them and listening well to their experience. It was easy for me to be dismissive. But then I started to study the scriptures. And started to see that, wow, this, this is a really important issue to the Lord, right? We see in the Old Testament, of course, and in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, how, how God has made all people, all tribes, tongues, nation, belongs to him. And then we see in, in the New Testament, uh, such a heartbeat of the New Testament is the work of Christ on the cross, of course, but also then how that brings racial unity to God's people, 
The connection between Jew and Gentile was such a difficult thing for the people of God to navigate. And so I was like, man, how, how can I afford to be indifferent to this issue that is so close to the heart of God? That men and women from different ethnicities and races and backgrounds can come together and worship the Lord and have true unity and really listen and, and understand each other and seek to grow in this way. I was like, this is not just some kind of progressive agenda. This is in the scriptures. And so if King Jesus cares about it, man, I, I better care about it. I better listen. I better explore this more. This is an important thing for today. So I bring that up just to illustrate how, again, we're all going to have things that are maybe, maybe foreign to us or maybe a little uncomfortable, but if the scriptures are talking about them and King Jesus is saying this is important, we have a responsibility to respond and say, well, it's going to be for me too then. And I want you to hear too, if, if you're here this morning, I don't want you to hear that uh, asking questions is a problem. That like, hey, just listen to the authority of Jesus and just, uh, you know, shut up about your questions. I don't want to hear them and don't, don't bring them up. That's not what I'm saying. Because there's a difference between asking questions to find out and asking questions to keep out. Right? Sometimes, if you're, especially if you're new here, you're new to the faith, you uh, are growing up in the church maybe that as well, you have questions about, okay, who is Jesus? And what does his word have to say on this topic? And how do we know that the scriptures are true? And so there's all kinds of questions that you're going to be coming with, right? So you don't just hear, hey, Jesus is the king of the universe. And, and the first time you'll be like, yes, all right, sweet, I'm on board. Maybe that will be your experience. But I think for a lot of us, there's, there's questions that we have to work through. And so those questions to find out are not bad. Genuine, sincere curiosity leading us to faith, that, that's a good part of our spiritual development and process. But not all of our questions are to truly find out, right? Sometimes we ask questions to keep out, or we're like, it's not really a genuine uh, desire of our heart to know the truth. It's kind of just a smokescreen we throw out there. Well, what about this? Put up a wall here, keep you at arm's length, Jesus. That's kind of what the religious leaders are doing, right? Because they, they know enough. They've seen. They've heard the message of Jesus. They've heard his teachings. They've seen his miracles for quite some time now. And so they're not coming in cold. They have an idea. And they're just trying to make him jump through some hoops. And so Jesus is like, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to jump through your hoops. You know enough. And so there, there comes a point again where our questions are no longer about finding out. It's about keeping out. So we have to be sensitive to that, where we're coming from. So Jesus doesn't jump through the hoops with them, but you see what he does do as he continues. Tells them a story, as he often does. It's a parable. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. This is chapter 12 now. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Okay, much of the rural Roman Empire would operate this way. There'd be a wealthy landowner, they'd own some land, they'd own a vineyard perhaps, and they'd rent it out to farmers or to tenants who would work it, produce fruit, and give it back to the owner. They'd oversee it and run it. And so this scenario would be familiar to the audience. Continues in verse 2. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent still another, and that one they killed. 
he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Okay, it, it would be expected that a landowner would send messengers to his farmers, those on his land, and, and ask for the fruit that the land had been producing. There's nothing strange about that. But what the servants do is, is rather strange. Excuse me, what the farmers do to the servants. They, they beat them, treat them shamefully. They don't listen to them. They kill some of them. It gets worse. Verse 6. He had one left to send, so the owner had a son whom he loved. So he sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So these farmers go from bad to worse. The owner sends his son. Surely they'll respect my son. But what do they do? Treat him the same way, and they kill him. Thinking that maybe they could gain the inheritance somehow for themselves, that the land would maybe become theirs and their greed and their lust for power. They commit this terrible act against the owner. And you see then in the text that eventually the owner's patience runs out in verse 9. When, excuse me, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. What's the owner going to do when he finds out? He's going to come, he's going to wipe you guys out and put in your place people who will respond to the owner, people who will obey, people who will walk in his ways. So it's a story, which means we have to interpret it. We have to read, okay, so what does this mean for us? What's the point Jesus is trying to make? So let's uh, walk through some of those things. First, we have to realize the story is about God and his people. It's about God and his people. The language that Jesus uses would be familiar to someone in the first century who knew their Old Testament like the religious leaders would. Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament starts this way. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. His vineyard is speaking of God. His vineyard. My loved one, God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. It goes on. So notice already the similarities between Isaiah chapter 5 and Mark chapter 12. What Jesus is saying, there's this vineyard, this wine press, this, this watchtower, a okay, familiar imagery. So the audience would be listening, say, hey, we've heard something like this before in Isaiah chapter 5. And also in the rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament, there are other places where this imagery is used as a picture of the people of God. The people of Israel were the vineyard that God owned. God was the owner. They were the vineyard. So they say, okay, he's, he's talking about us. He's telling us something about us and about God, right? In verse 12 of Mark 12, back to Mark, it says what? Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, this is after he's done telling the story, looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they get it. Like he's saying something against us. He's using this story to point the finger at us in a certain way. And then it says they were afraid of the crowd as they were before, so they left him and they went away for the time being. Okay, so what is Jesus telling them? What's he pointing out in their lives? A couple things. First, the foolishness of the farmers. 
the foolishness of, of rejecting God and the owner again and again. Right? Also in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 7 and a few other places, it talks about how God sent messengers to his people and prophets over and over again, teaching them, calling them to repentance, and they didn't listen. It's the story of the Old Testament. But Jeremiah chapter 7 puts it succinctly in verse 25. From the time your forefathers left Egypt in the Exodus until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. I've been sending you messengers and prophets for generations trying to help you connect back with me, but they wouldn't listen. They've been resisting it. They've been rejecting me over and over. And so by doing this, Jesus is not just calling them out and talking about the history of Israel. It also relates to us today. How we at times can resist the message that God has for us. We can resist his word, his scriptures, or we act like these foolish farmers who think they're the owners of the vineyard. When really, we're just stewards. Right? Everything that we have, the gifts, the time, the abilities, the finances, everything that we have and enjoy is a gift from God to be used for his purposes. Right? We're not owners of the vineyard. We're stewards. That he has entrusted this responsibility to us. And so we answer to him. He is still the owner and still the authority. And so think about how different you act when you are a renter or a steward versus a owner of something. It's a big difference in your mindset, right? When you're in your own home, even if you're just renting a home, but when you're in your space, you make the decisions about what goes on there, right? You make the decorating choices and about, in, you know, your house rules and things of that nature. You do what you want to do or what your wife allows you to do in that space. But when you go to someone else's house, and it's not your space, you're not the owner of it, you're sitting on their couch, you might not be so quick to throw your feet up on their table or open their fridge and make a snack and go and turn down or up their thermostat, right, and change the channel on their TV, right, you kind of tread lightly because you realize, okay, the things that I'm enjoying now, they don't belong to me, they belong to someone else, so I'm going to be sensitive to that. Again, the same is true with everything about our lives. Again, our time, our energy, our, our gifts, our passions, our abilities, our health, our money is not our own, but it's been entrusted to us by God. And we have a responsibility then to, to use it to bear fruit in his vineyard for his purposes. See? We're not owners. And so Jesus is trying to help them and help us see that. At the same time, he's trying to help them see and help us see the grace of God. Do you see the grace and the patience of God in the text? In this story, messenger after messenger is beaten and killed. And so rather than saying, I'm done, time and again, he gives opportunity after opportunity for response, even to the point of sending his own son no ancient landowner would go to such lengths to satisfy or try and get through to these wicked farmers. No one would do that. 
You say, I'm, I'm done with you guys and I'm moving on. But time and time again, God shows his grace and his patience. Maybe this time they'll respond. Maybe this time they'll respond. He continues to give them opportunities. And this is really the gospel we celebrate, that we were rebels running away from God, doing things our own way, saying, no, God, we're in charge here. But God came and he sought us. He changed our hearts. He forgave our sins and he called us home and brought us back to relationship with him. So we celebrate the grace and the patience of God that he shows time and time again. And you see that it's all about the son, right? The son is kind of the, the, the focus of the story, that he comes at the end. And what happens to the son? He's rejected. He's cast out. He's killed. And so as Jesus is speaking about the son in this parable, he, we know, of course, he's, he's pointing to himself. He is the son on the scene that will be rejected and killed and die for the sins of the world. And yet he continues in verse 10 to say after the parable, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone, now he's talking about an architectural metaphor, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus, the son, comes, is rejected and killed, and yet it is his life, death, and resurrection that is the foundation of the church. The message of the gospel is about him, his work. The the cornerstone would be, the architecturally speaking, the most significant stone in the entire building. In the corner there, that upon which the rest of the building would rest and rely. And so Jesus is saying that it's the most important. His work is the foundation, the centerpiece of our entire life and relationship with God. And so we can't miss this point. And it's easy, it's easy for us to miss this point because here's what we do. Sometimes we'll hear a message like this and we'll think, okay, Jesus is the king. Uh, God is my authority, and so uh, maybe we hear this growing up again. It's just, I better get in line. Right? I better obey. I better keep the rules, and it leads to this kind of fear-based compliance or this kind of dead religion where we do the church thing and we jump through the hoops because we're afraid or maybe it's because we want to look better than other people and so we keep the rules really well. Or maybe we think if we keep the rules right and we play the game how God told us to, then you know what? He's going to owe us. Really? He'll owe me, isn't it? When we get bitter, when life doesn't go well, it's like, well, haven't I been a good Christian? Haven't I been a good person? So God, why am I receiving this now, right? Sometimes we think, I'll keep the rules, and then God will owe me. But do you see that that is not true love for God? That's not a transformed heart by the gospel. That's just dead religion. And some of us will go the other direction, where we'll hear about Jesus the King and God is the authority, and we'll say, I want nothing to do with that. No one's going to tell me what to do, and so I want to go and live my own way. I'm going to run from religion. I'm going to run from the church. I don't want anything to do with that God or these people trying to boss me around. Both directions are bad, (laughs) and even the one that stays in the church and does all the really churchy things is equally lost and separated from God. 
Neither of those people really love the Lord and want to know him. And so, do you see how the gospel of Jesus changes that? It transforms that so that we don't go either of those directions. And instead, we develop in our hearts a true love for God. How does that happen? It's by looking at Jesus. It's by looking at the cornerstone. Because we see he was rejected. He was killed for me. He died in my place. And so look at the lengths God went to to rescue me, to save me, to display his love. How could I not want to serve a king like that? How could I not want to serve a king that has done so much for me? And so then we respond not out of fear-based compliance and just jumping through the hoops, but out of truly love for the Lord. Because the gospel is not, here's what you go and do to get right with God. It's, here's what God has done for you. And that changes our hearts. And we really get it. So we have to see Jesus as the cornerstone. Lastly in the text, there is a warning here that Jesus is bringing with the parable. Right? He shows the mercy and patience and grace of God. But it also shows eventually a time of judgment will come. Right? Eventually the patience of the landowner will run out. I say, okay, if you want nothing to do with me, if you're not going to walk with me, if you're not going to recognize what I've done for you in my grace, then, okay, when I bring my kingdom, this new world that I'm redeeming, you will not be a part of that. So you can forever have your space away from me, and that's what we call hell. Judgment. It's a, it's a tough word, but this does end on a, a sense of urgency. That God offers grace and grace, but eventually... Eventually, there will come a time we'll have to answer for our lives. And so we want to respond to Jesus. Look at his love, how he's loved you. Look at what he's done for you and for me. So if you're here today and you've never quite made that response, you've never put your faith in the Lord and in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you, I encourage you to let today be the day you respond. To say yes to Jesus to give him your life, to ask for his grace and forgiveness. I'm sure if you're here with someone, they'd love to share with you more about what that looks like in their life. And I'd love to talk with you if you have questions. Please consider that. And so as we bring it all together, probably see this repeated theme, right? Jesus is the king. He is our authority. Will we welcome the king? We've been talking about that for a couple weeks now and probably continue. And it's not because it's like my hobby horse, or like, I just really enjoy that topic, and so we just really want to keep driving it home, or that I'm making it up. We, we see in the text, that's where the book of Mark keeps pointing us. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Will we respond and welcome him and accept his incredible love and grace for us and for the world? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which... Uh, we admit is often challenging and convicting and hard for us to hear. And yet it is good and life-giving. And so we, God, want to respond to you not out of fear or dead religion to try and force your hand, Lord, but simply out of gratitude and joy for how you have loved us. Jesus, you are the king. 
You are the cornerstone upon which the whole building is built. It's all about you. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.